out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you. I was going to say, to the end of time. Anyway, um, to the end of this interview, which is probably, I don't know, 40, 50 minutes. And as you know, we love a good special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Blamange because I spoke to the main man, or one of them, Neil Arthur, recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, music, the creative process, and much, much more. Anyway, after a very long chat about cycling, bizarrely, which I've edited out, we get down to the musical, um, yes his musical journey and this is Neil taking it right back to that early all those early years Neil it's over to you well anything my sister played had an elder sister still got an elder sister and um, she would have a record player in a room uh, or take it from downstairs and put it up there you know and and she'd listen to stuff so I'd be hearing a lot of soul music uh, and um other stuff as well, actually, thinking about it, she did listen to the Beach Boys, and uh, we all listened to the Beatles downstairs, yes. and I remember the first record I bought, so as a real whippersnapper, was, uh cost me two and six, and I went to Nightingales in Darwin, uh, in Lancashire, and I bought, um, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, and uh, so... I like the Stones and I like the Beatles. And then as I was growing up, I discovered T-Rex and that started me on a bit of a journey. Uh, I also remember really liking Mungo Jerry and I went to see him in Blackburn. But yes. T-Rex particularly. And then that led on to Bowie. I went to see Bowie play and uh, when I was a young lad in the early 70s. And um, uh, that was just, that was actually incredible that was a real kind of quite um epiphany moment for me um <clears throat> to see to see somebody perform uh like that and do the songs he did on the ziggy stardust tour um and around that time i'd got into via a friend of mine noel um no wild he uh introduced me to roxy music's first album which i then having heard it went down and bought it and that led me on to Eno, and Eno took me on to um, Noi, and then Kraftwerk, and Noi took me on to Cluster and uh, experimental music, and the next thing I knew, I was in London at Art College, and punk happened, and uh, it didn't last for long, but it kind of made me realise that what I was doing with art, I could also do by making noises, and I met a kindred spirit. Stephen Luscombe, and we started experimenting and uh, with Tupperware and tape loops. And then beyond that, we started assembling our noises, which we were doing really just to almost like a relaxation, just a kind of release of energy. Yes. We ended up over a period of several years uh, holding them down into songs. And then the opportunity came to go with a record company um, and we were quite excited about that. We were both working as graphic designers by that time and thought, well, if the opportunity comes up, let's run with it. And, uh, of course, we you, you end up kind of like squeezing your um, 
your squares into rounds. Yes. <laughs> and, and and that's what we did. And um, just, I know you haven't asked another question, so I'm, I'm giving you a long answer, but uh, although I write on guitar a lot of the time, uh, I'm not a very good guitarist, uh, but I can realise enough that's it in my head into the plucking of a string or whatever it is to get the idea down. And I just tried as Stephen did, we tried to keep it as simple as possible and see where it took us. Yes, which which kind of led to your, I suppose, the sort of beginnings of the first album, which was um, It's Happy Families, isn't it? So when yeah. so when do you sort of, because obviously it was quite a leap, especially with your sort of, it sounds like you were going through a real David Bowie low phase as well. So there's kind of a sense of sort of making a noise or, or sort of soundscapes to and a sort of sonic experiment to actually craft in a three minute song. So can you remember the first sort of song that you thought, wow, actually that's we've created something quite unique there? Sad Day. The song Sad Day that went on uh, Steve O's uh, sampler for the Sun Bizarre album. So he approached us. We'd, we'd done a an EP that a friend had funded, David Hill. Uh, Dave Hill had funded it, and um, he got a tax rebate. And uh, so <clears throat> he said, I want to help you realise, you know, something, and you've got all these songs and uh, these ideas. And they were semi-structured. Uh, but the thing that did come out of that, we had a, we had a song that we didn't put on the EP, and because uh, it wasn't quite finished, but when it was finished, it realised that that was a, the most structured thing we'd done. It was an instrumental uh, called Sad Day, and it went on that some bizarre album. Yes, because that was because um, I know I did an interview with um, the guy from Fetus, Scraping Fetus from the Wheel, and I think oh he... Frank, yeah, yeah, yes. Oh. So so there was there was a lot of exciting experimentation at that time because. Having done a lot of interviews with bands, you know, that, that sort of early 80s period, there was a lot of um, people having a go. But also there was a lot of what helped as well, bizarrely, was kind of, I suppose, being unemployed. There was there was a lot of people who would sort of think, well, actually, I can sort of sign on for a few years and at the same time create some music while I'm sort of thinking of what happens next. But I'm, not everybody had that route, but there, there was a lot of bands who formed out of, of sort of... And the job seekers allowance and enterprise land scheme. So, did you didn't you didn't sound like you were part of that particular world yourself? I don't think we were part of any world really. No, <laughs> uh, we don't. We didn't really. We kind of. I, I, I look back at it. I think we we probably deliberately ploughed a, um, a lonely furrow. But I didn't mind that at all. And of course, many times people find it more comfortable not for the band's sake but for themselves to actually uh, put you in a category it just makes things nice and tidy for everybody's yes process. but um we uh no we didn't want to belong to any uh particular kind of group or whatever we just we did what we had to do we made lots of friends along uh, along the way and some of them happened to be also musicians but uh uh, I can remember having a very, very good evening out with um, with uh, Mr. Fetus in uh, in Berlin yeah. with my partner and uh, Nick Cave was there as well. Actually, I mean, what a combination! Yes. Anyway, well, but it was a yeah. And I remember carrying my partner home, and she had a over the cobble streets. We weren't home; we were going back to wherever we were staying. But I can remember coming home. And it was, it, Birds were going absolutely bonkers, daylight. 
my goodness, we had a good evening. And she was carrying her heels over her, her shoulder and I was giving her a piggyback. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> yes, the, joy, the, the wonders of youth and certainly um, good knees as well. But did you, I mean, obviously there must have been an element of kind of excitement and exploration because... Because obviously, you know, each generation has a zeitgeist moment and, you know, the next the baton gets passed on, kind of sometimes mm. quite sort of let go reluctantly by those who were, who were sort of once the sort of the main bands like T-Rex and Slade. And then suddenly <coughs> another group comes along and then another group comes along. So so when you when you suddenly found yourself with chart band success, to quote John Peel, really, I mean, did that feel a bit of a surprise suddenly to sort of. To, to have such kind of a, I don't know, it was almost like NASA, isn't it, having a rocket take off so quickly? So, you know, with your sort of early early album, really. Oh, bloody hell, uh, yeah. Uh, so I just, what happened with uh, John Peel, for example, I just, yes, in answer to your question, yes, it was a real surprise. But what, um, excuse me, what happened was uh, even just getting John Peel to hear us was, I, we had this EP, the Iron and Mavis EP, and there were a thousand copies of it. One of them ended up in the hands of uh, Steve-O, uh, some bizarre. And uh, I was at a, I was at the Nashville down in London. I'm trying to think who we'd gone to see. I think we'd gone to see the Human League, and uh, we were playing there. And it was a terrible evening, the work, anyway. So we were there, and... Um, I'd taken with me just in case. You never know. You might see somebody who might want your record. And you know, as a young lad, I was, you know, uh, I just thought I'll take I'll take a couple of copies of Iron and Mavis with me. Anyway, one of the uh, a person I saw was Mark E. Smith, and I, you know, we used to go and see the, the full every time they played in London. And uh, so I gave him a copy. Anyway, he wrote back to me. Very, very long letter, and we ended up corresponding. My letters were very short, unlike my you know, kind of rabbiting on now. Um, I tend to do very short letters. And um, he wrote a very long letter to me and on, on several occasions, and one of them was particularly encouraging me, having listened to the EP, saying how much he liked it, saying, you must send this to John Peel. And without him saying it, I don't think we'd have had the nerve to send it to him. And having done that, it was even more of a surprise when John Field played the damn thing, uh, some of it. Um, but you know, it was a surprise to get um, to get a hit. But it wasn't it wasn't like overnight. You know, we'd had God's Kitchen and I've seen the word out as our first single, and then Feel Me had come out, and uh, Feel Me had done. Fortunately for us, had done really well, particularly because of John Luongo's remix. Had done very well in the clubs, um, but it did it did knock us back when Living on the Ceiling was a hit and it stayed in the charts for so long. So we didn't, yeah, we didn't ex- didn't expect it. And um, I mean, nothing changed other than we. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't move. I didn't kind of, you know, um, I didn't buy a car or anything. I, nothing happened. <laughs> My yes. wages didn't go up. <laughs> Um, we just had to do a lot more work. Yeah, absolutely. And did it feel like quite a jump? Because you got a John Peel session as well in, it was 82, wasn't it? Your, your sort of one where you had sort did of... Did we? Oh, right. 
<laughs> I think we did a couple for him, but I couldn't remember where it was. I can't so, quite. Um, really, I think it was very early, and you did. I did sort of yeah. um, yes. See, you didn't, especially on the first one, you even got into the famous John Peel Festive Fifty, which must have been feeling like you'd arrived. Right. So that was it, it. Was yeah. So it was obviously it was all very happening. Did, did that feel because from being an art student to making sort of little sort of sounds to suddenly being in the John Peel kind of producer I don't know who the producer was actually but it might have been Del Griffith I suppose um yeah did that feel quite interesting because most people were a bit like wow we've just gone into the BBC studios at Maida Vale and that's that feels quite grown up yeah I can I do remember going in there uh, but you know it's like um and of course we were really excited and uh, nervous at the same time um the thing I remember most about doing the session um well, I, well, I remember recording uh, Running Thin particularly because uh, we had a problem with the rhythm unit. We took a an eight or eight rhythm unit in with us. And, uh, but we had a bit of time off and we went in to see the uh, radiophonic workshop and that was just amazing. So, yeah, it, but, uh, uh, yes, it, you know, I mean, we... It's a long time ago, so yes. Uh, and did you did you sort but of weirdly? I do remember it quite well. Oh, then, I just was thinking because everyone loves that photo of um, Delia Derbyshire, don't they? Where I think she, I don't know if that was where she was based, but there's a fantastic photograph because she did a lot of kind of sonic yep. soundscapes in the fifties and sixties, which was yeah. kind of made her quite an iconic character. It's because with with um, yes, she was a big influence. I mean, a few we absolutely loved Delia Derbyshire at the time. Her uh, voice wasn't uh, shouted from the the toppermost building loud enough. Other people were getting the uh, were getting the attention that, uh, that Stephen and I both thought that she certainly deserved. And now, many years later, all, you know, and it's fantastic. She she is getting yes. praises are being sung, and rightly so. She did some amazing, amazing stuff. I know, so so ahead of her time, really. So, because because the one thing that I've noticed with with doing these interviews is that most bands have a, a great five year narrative, you know, where they they get together, you know, bizarrely, you tick all these boxes, you know, John Peel gives the play, gets a John Peel session, first album, good, second album can be a bit tricky. If anybody ever does America, often not good, um, especially from the UK, and then sort of roughly, you know, it doesn't sort of last for long. So so you're you know you managed to sort of get three albums. Albums and you did last a bit longer than the, the normal four to five years. So did it feel when you, you know, after you got the first album out that you were living, you know, the, the Blancmange 24-7? Um, it was a bit of a, well, the, it, had it been 24-7, uh, we wouldn't have even got to the second album because <laughs> uh, it's one of the reasons I... I stopped really when we were doing the third album. So, um, and although Stephen and I both agreed, we, anyway, we finished the album. We did a certain amount of work afterwards to fulfill obligations and, you know, enjoyed it as much of it as we could. Uh, the first album was um, made up of material that we'd recorded over a relatively long period of time in the build up to getting the deal. And you know, and getting the deal was a surprise enough. And then, um, no sooner have you finished, uh, you're beginning to finish record, rec uh, promote the first album, Happy Families, that 
you've got a manager and an A&R man in, you know, in your ear a bit, kind of saying, um, any thoughts about a second album? Well, we spent four years trying to find out how to turn a synthesizer on. So when it came to, you know, when you've only got, I don't know, a year to make you, uh, six months to do the next, to you know, come up with the songs for the next album, it's like, oh, bloody hell, right, okay. Um, but in actual fact, I've got to say, I, I really enjoyed doing the second album, and uh, I quite liked the uh, the pressure definitely was on, because the record company attitudes were changing from um, an album's, you know, you, you, uh, you could be an album's band, and, and, and it was definitely moving towards your a band that makes albums, but there has to be three singles on there. And we're also going to make videos, and everything is recuperable. So, you know, you start becoming aware of things, and you start growing up a damn sight quicker than um, you might have done in, um, I don't know, in a, a different scenario. I'm not sure what it would be, but anyway. Um, so, um, I wasn't sorry to stop it, yes. I've got to say. I really wasn't sorry. By the time we'd done the third album, I really wasn't sorry. We were, we were on stage at, uh, we're doing a Greenpeace concert um, benefit at uh, the Royal Albert Hall, and I just great, fantastic to be able to to be asked to go and do something like that. But I just thought this isn't what I thought. It's nothing to do with Greenpeace. I think wonderful, but this is what we had become at that point. I'm going. Well, this isn't. This isn't. It's meant to be fun. As soon as it's not fun, what's the point of that? So um, I had a chat with Stephen, and he agreed, and we stopped. Yes. So um, I, uh, I, I have no, I, absolutely no regrets about stopping it. Yeah. Uh, because I, I didn't stop being me. I just stopped doing blamange. <laughs> but just going slightly. It's only blamange. Yes. It's only blamange day. Yes, it's a, it doesn't it's a, really matter, does it? <laughs> it's just I know at the end of the day that's that's the best thing. Mm. But just going back to the the second album because you did a very iconic song, which I don't know if you realised. I think it's an iconic song. The you know the the day before you came, which mm. was that Abba's last ever record. It was something quite. Significant that particular song, which has kind of built up sort of more significance over the decades, I suppose. I just wondered why you chose that particular track. A few reasons, really. Um, Abba weren't uh, weren't as popular in mm. uh, nineteen. You know, what was it eighty three or eighty four when we brought it out? Well, they only came popular again in sort of like nineteen ninety nine, didn't they? So by that period, yeah. Abba had become like. You know, like Abba, who you know, they yeah. sort of like you know, they they yes, absolutely. I remember very well that you know, no one. Okay, so we, I, uh, me and Stephen really liked, um, really liked the, uh, the, the the well, I was there were certain albums, but anyway, the the Abba we really liked. I was brought up on Abba. My mum used to clean that. My mum and dad cleaned the house with it and I did my chores to Abba and if it wasn't Abba it wouldn't be Fat Swallower and, yeah. you know. Uh, um, anyway, so Craftwork. Uh, um, I really enjoyed hoovering to Craftwork. Well, there you go. So, uh, we decided to do that song for a few different reasons. Uh, one, yeah, it was one of the uh, final um, uh, singles, 
It was, I think it was the final single. Mm-hmm. And uh, more importantly for us was that uh, we liked the... Um, I like I like the slight contradiction. I like the um, uh, Steve and I did this idea of this tall Lancastrian you know, northern bloke you know, singing the words that were clearly written for a woman to sing, and we like to turn that round because why shouldn't I sing it? And uh, I, I, and I. I absolutely love the song. I, I, I really did, and I love the version of it. I absolutely do. And um, you know, we we did it in honour of them. That's why we did it. Yes. Uh, the lovely thing for us was that they wrote to us and and really liked it. And uh, that it was pretty. That's nice. And so much so, the record company gave us permission to use um, the f- video footage, which is why you see. Um, Anita, there, apparently sitting on the same train as me, but uh, she's not. <laughs> I wish she had been, yes. but she wasn't. <laughs> well, it's nice to know that um, they definitely have heard, you know, heard your version. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but uh, it doesn't really matter, does it? So, there you go. <sighs> but it is ABBA, you know. It is, you know. I still kind of think that they have. Oh got... yeah, yeah. So from that point of view, yeah, it's really nice. But I mean, it's they're. they're they're the, um, they're the stars, they wrote it, and, uh, and all the other stuff. So. Yes. So when you sort of got to that Greenpeace fan, uh, you, it sounded like the album, you knew that things were coming to an end, and definitely with the concert. Did you feel a great sense of relief when you could just sort of almost like pack it away and say, "That's I'm just walking away from it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, and I didn't change my mind. So, uh, And then, well, not so... Not for 26 years, anyway. Yes. So what does what does one do after you've had that kind of incredible, intense kind of growing up in sort of public kind of period, you know, and producing, you know, something that's very tangible and quite unique in, in the sense of, you know, kind of music. What do you then do when you sort of need to get on with the rest of your life? Well, we're all human, so there are ups and downs with it, really. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to get the opportunity to do what I did for that period of time and many people uh, maybe had wanted to and didn't get the opportunity and I knew a few, few of them and there were lots of people who weren't even interested in doing it in the first place <laughs> and I went and met a lot of them <laughs> and uh, uh, you know found other things to do but there were ups and downs um, you know ups and downs to it because uh, you might um, there's no therapy for the come down of it all you know, the, there's, you know, the record companies don't kind of give you a hand, kind of, they're not interested. You, you're a unit, aren't you? you yes. know, and I'm not cynical about it, because I mean, we had a fantastic relationship with our record company, I think. Uh, I thought they were they were really good and they were very supportive. But at the end of the day, they've just got to move on to what's next for their business. But for us, you're left there, and it's quite a strange, you know, uh, feeling at times. Um, you... Because you got you, you get used to going being recognised, and uh, even at our level, you know, not, not, you know, we're somewhere in one of the divisions, but certainly not in the top division. But you certainly get um, <clears throat> you get you get recognised, and 
and that can be quite awkward sometimes. And some, you know, I don't. I, I stopped doing it because I didn't really want to be having to deal with any of that. Um, and I'm speaking to you now, but I was quite happy not to. Really, really not. I was so happy not to do it. Yeah. And so I went off, and I did. Um, I got the opportunity more or less immediately. Um, I was really fortunate. I got offered the opportunity to do some composition for film which meant that I could be surrounded by the things I felt comfortable with. I could express myself. Um, I knew how the machinery worked. I didn't have to have my picture taken. And um, and I didn't have to worry about, you know, there were, and I, got, I knew when I was going to get paid, you know, I had to work. So, yes. Uh, so I got the opportunity to do that and I really enjoyed it. And I still do when I get the, you know, when, I mean, now I'm doing Blamange and, Fader and Near Future and quite a few other projects. Uh, so that's that's my that takes my time and I love doing it. But you know, I was a different person um, quarter of a century ago. Well, absolutely, because actually there's a lot of water under the bridge. There's, yes, absolutely, and I, I sort of realise because there's quite a lot of people, you know, when they walk away, and I, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal man. You know, it's quite a harrowing experience. And I think with a few, there were people who had, you know, like, oh, my God, I've got a tax bill to pay. I've got no, no I've got no home. I've got nothing. You know, people might recognise me in the street, but I'm, I'm at literally uh, not much, much, have, have as, much, as much as most homeless people at this moment, you know, because they've suddenly had to sell, you know, all their instruments. They've paid, a, a ta- yep. you know, a bill. They've gone, actually, I don't even have a house. I don't even have any, you know, I'm a completely dysfunctional human being. I don't even know how you operate in the world and yet I'm now nearly 30 so it's quite you know I've often been like quite like wow that's that is quite something and yet someone might come up and say oh weren't you so-and-so once or you know well haven't you got a limousine you think Christ mate I've got nothing <laughs> you know it's like it, it is quite well, yeah yes. yeah and the, and the answer is weren't weren't you I mean so the, the question sometimes would be weren't you and the thing is you still are yes I know a few people say and uh, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because recently I saw an article where um, an MP was photographed. Uh, somebody who'd actually stood for Parliament, sorry, and didn't get in, um, was photographed um, at a job centre. And I thought, where is the story there? That's just that's just waiting for an opportunity to to knock somebody down, as though what, what, why are you even thinking there's a story there? You know, it's just like um, people are so uh, can be so um, can be so cruel, and uh, it's a it's a it's a tough world. It really is a tough world. And um, I, uh, I, you know, there I'm not talking about myself though, but I certainly kind of I see other people and the way uh, social media treats people. Uh, people seem to be able to say things with um, apparent impunity. And uh, I, I wonder sometimes whether um, social media has kind of had a, such an influence that it's flipped on the head. Because some of the things I hear people saying to one another face to face are as though um, there's a kind of a, a switch being turned off on the uh, in the empathy se- sector. Yeah, <laughs> I know. empathy and uh, kindness you have know, been slightly. Yes, I think we've become a bit. Re- yeah, I think I think you all know, started with Thatcher, as far as I'm concerned. So when people get nostalgic about the 80s, I, I um, I said, well, you know, 
there's a, I, have a, I have a feeling about nostalgia. I'm, I'm very interested in the future for all its difficulties, but the one thing about nostalgia is that, for me, it, it feels sometimes a little bit like history without the guilt. Yes, absolutely. But, um, yes, well, often when I reflect back on my 80s, kind of think, actually, mm. it was really grim, but the music was fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, some grim is grim, It's very, we were angsty, it was very, you know, it was like worried, you know, it was like, it was quite, you know, it wasn't great. But then, just quickly, just, um, you know, then, then sort of obviously, you know, a decade passed and a bit more, and then you decided, when did you decide to reunite the band did, did did was there a moment that that or was there a few moments that sort of added to to sort of the thought of bringing it together yeah so Stephen and I had kept I think splitting up had kept to preserve the friendship because I think we, we're very much like chalk and cheese and that's good when it's working a, a constructive uh, constructively creative uh, way but also you can imagine the reverse so us uh, having stopped at that time, I preserved a friendship, which is very, very important. And um, we kept in, as I said, kept in touch, and every so often we meet up and talk about music and what have you, no doubt. Anyway, one day, I used to live in Brixton, and uh, I invited him down to my studio that I had down there, and um, I played him about, I don't know, about eight songs that I'd written. And uh, and that's too much for anybody in one setting. But he he enjoyed it, and um, we went another pint afterwards and had a chat and decided that uh, we'd finish those off and um, write an album, which became Blank Burn. So I suppose that was around 2008, 2009, and then we recorded and finished it and released it 2011. You know, it took a while. We never rushed stuff. Yes. Um, unfortunately, then Stephen. He was, and he still remains uh, ill, and his condition is something that he's monitoring at all times. It was clear that he wasn't, let alone going studio, uh, going tour. He wasn't even going to go in the studio. So uh, he gave me a kick up the arse and said, he "Knew I wanted to get on with expressing myself." So that's why, from then on, you know, so with uh, semi attached up to um, mindset, um, I've uh, been ploughing that lonely furrow even um, more single-handedly. Yes. So, uh, although recently, last three albums with Ben Jedwards, um, which is fantastic, my fellow collaborator on Fader as well. So, you know, we're, I'm in good company with with him and some of the, the guys on tour with um, Liam Hutton on his electronic drums and um, uh, Ugu Maya on his synthesizers and uh, Vakoda. So, We've worked together a long time together. Uh, good fun. Yeah, and and also, I mean, it's kind of interesting because you've obviously sort of developed kind of more of a body work now, phase two of the band than, than phase one. So does that does yeah. that mean that with with and also playing live, which did that feel quite? I mean, doing the studio album and releasing it is quite scary, but then putting yourself out there and seeing the poster and thinking, gosh, we've, I've got something quite big for a couple of months touring. How did that sort of feel, sort of knowing that you were going to um, go through that process again? Well, I didn't have to go through it because it, the whole model had changed. Um, you know, the old record companies were a little bit like a, a great big uh, oil tanker in the Mersey, um, waiting for tugs to turn it. You know, it was, it, they just couldn't. They could, uh, the record companies 
are so different. And what I'm saying is they couldn't change quick enough. And, of course, you know, the independents and the individuals who wanted to release music jumped on all the technological changes and um, and did it their way. Uh, various different things coming on, and we talked about, you know, with social media, with kind of streaming and all these different things. Um, for example, you know, the, the difference between recording analog years ago, having to go in expensive studios. Now, digitally, we can... Um, uh, write and record possibly a whole album on a bloody computer. Not that I do, but you could, and yes. um, you know, and 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 release it. And many, many people do. And I spend a lot of time working with computers, and it kind of goes in and out of a computer actually, because we use a lot of uh, digital um, analog stuff as well. But um, when it came to actually making the albums, finishing them off, uh, beyond the songwriting, the songwriting effectively is the same i just approach it the same way i sit down i have an idea i look at what's going on around me i put it through the authorizer and you know something comes out at the other end which is a mixture of you know my reflections some surreal some absolute you know somebody some some uh, uh i consider to be um observations clear observations from my point of view anyway and um uh, I mix them up with uh, truths and half truths. A bit like life, really. Yes, well, it's a bit <laughs> uh, like anyway. It. So, but uh, sorry, just to finish. Uh, but the, the thing is, when we when I want to release something, I don't ask an A and R man what he thinks. Uh, this is what you used to do. You used to, you know, every record would be handed in, and they'd pass judgment on it, and they would talk about, you know, kind of a hi hat not being too loud, or <laughs> uh, you know, maybe we could have some cigarette smoke on the middle eight. Uh, it's now I just take the final thing in I'm not going to make a video well maybe every so often I am just going to say that's finished <laughs> that's it yes there isn't there isn't another mix this is it so and that's how it is excellent well that's that's it, obviously I mean did you have to go through a bit of a process of thinking to yourself I mean, because a lot of people I spoke to, you know, it's that feeling of like, God, can I really, can I really call myself, you know, an academic or can I call myself an artist, you know, and then one day you think, oh, God, I've been doing it for long enough. I've got this body work. I can now say that, yes, I am an artist. I just wondered if, if you know, after your phase one period, you know, then your, your phase two, whether you suddenly think, actually, I am sort of, yeah, I can, I can, you know, I am in the same world as... I mean, to quote, not quote, but, you know, like David Bowie, you know, who's, you know, who, who I suppose it was like, because I suppose with David Bowie, he was always releasing stuff and you could see that he was always like taking these amazing chances. And, and you're thinking, looking back, you think, God, that must have been quite something to say he's low and, and not for people oh, to say, you know what yeah. I mean? So I just wondered if you, <clears throat> you often feel like you can have those, I don't know. The, the balls to do, I suppose. There's no, um, I, you couldn't mention Blumange in the same breath as David Bowie. There's no comparison. <laughs> and I know, but it, moving away from kind of, you know, he's, he's so far up there, it's yes. just ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, but in terms of um, how you might feel about kind of following your instincts and yes, saying, this think... is it. Yes, I, and I, you know, uh, I think that's what you mean. I would, uh, in fact, I know that's what you mean. Uh, yeah, I just, the thing is, if you don't believe it, who the fuck is going to do? This is true. 
you know, if you don't, if you don't believe what you're doing, and it, the thing is, it doesn't matter what anybody. I mean, obviously, I, I, it's lovely if people say they like your music, but first and foremost, you've got to believe it. <laughs> you've got to believe what you're doing. What's the point? There's only one time around the block, you know. So <laughs> if this is what you do, and uh, um, uh, you know, I'll get found out one day, maybe, you know. But it's about, <laughs> oh, yes, he said he was a musician <laughs> <laughs> or an artist. You just do what you do, and I write every day, and I'm lucky that I can do that. But it's luckier that I want to as well. And and have you found the touring process kind of more easy now? You know, with with sort of like time, because you, you know you've done quite a few tours around the sort of the country, and and you seem to sort of be able to fit in quite happily. And you've got a circuit, and you're obviously picking up new member you know new audience members as well as probably old fans from sort of 30 plus years ago um i, I uh, and that's the latter part of that question uh, is fantastic to um it's it's great that we we do um have the people coming to our shows who came first time round and um also a newer audience as well who are discovering us or inquisitive um and because they're into all different aspects of music and electronics in particular, probably. Um, but I don't like touring. Um, I love the gig. I love. I really, really enjoy performing. I, you know, that is great. But my goodness, I don't like touring. <laughs> but um, we, in a way, you've got not got to. It's kind of part and parcel. I kind of expect to do it because it's my. Um, it's a way now we talked about how kind of like the model has changed all the kind of the way the record company worked and um, the social media and uh, streaming and all these things but it's just it's my small label with very limited resources so to have the uh, AGMP promoting our shows and being able to go out there with the help of my manager and all the hard work he does it, it, it's it, it's great how it all comes together, but the actual touring, the miles, and the hotels, and the bloody traffic jams, and all that stuff, and being away from your family, I don't like it at all. No, but uh, the gig is great. Yes, I think the gig it... is great, and I love I, I love the bit at the end because I always go out and meet people and sign. Yes, and. Uh, I absolutely love that. I usually get a bit of ammunition for the next uh, album. So. Yeah. Well, I think most people think, you know, seven seven hours of hell, two hours of real pleasure, you know, a real sort of, yeah. And and one thing that I... You know, but, we'll, we'll, sorry, we'll, sorry, Dave, but if they've made the effort, you know, people have made the effort and they've parted with their money and this is, you know, it's really obvious this, but some people might not think about it. They, you know, what's the point, of, I said it earlier, you know, with the songs? If you you know writing an album, I, I'm actually I really get in there. I've got to be in there. So if you're going on stage, it doesn't matter where you are, where you're playing, how many people there are. You've got you're there. They've paid the bloody money, and you've got to lock in. You know you really owe it to them. So that's what we do. Yes. Just kind of get on with it. I mean, it's for goodness sake, how many other things could you be doing? You know, think of or not doing. So I'm doing it. Yes, absolutely. Now, several things. You've got a new album coming out very soon, mm -hmm. which is, yep. um, you must be very excited. I was just going to 
ask you as well. Well, the one thing that I've noticed, and I think 30, 25 to 30 years seem to be a pass in time where we suddenly start to look at things, you know, rather than just kind of being slightly disposed or shrugging the shoulders and suddenly wanting to archive stuff. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of people have either started writing books about their experience or even films. There was like The Wedding Present did one on George Best and The Go-Betweens and The Chills and you know, the slits and L7, et cetera. You know, so everyone, I mean, have you sort of been tempted with either of those two mediums or has anybody come up to you and said, I'd really love to do a, a sort of a project about the band? Uh, yeah, we we have um, been approached, but um, no, there's no but. Yeah, we have been approached. <laughs> it would be, uh, it'd be like um, uh, since tap, wouldn't it? Spinal synth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, but. it would. It really would because it's uh, it's it's more. There are aspects of it that are more rock and roll than anybody could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. So have you? So so I mean, the the film is often something by somebody who really wants to do it. The book is often the person. Have you been tempted with kind of documenting the the story of your sort of musical life? Myself? Yes. No. No, I'd need help, <laughs> um, and that's why when when I answer your question, because we have been asked, and uh, on both fronts. So, but. It would be uh, yeah something have to coax it out of me. So. Yes, um, you know. So it's uh, but yeah. The thing is, I, I take it all with a pinch of salt. I mean, when when we were asked, I went, "Are you sure? You know, <laughs> do you, you really really want to? You know, would you think anybody being really interested? You know, so other than a, a short a short article on it. Yes. Well, I think you know. For the fan, you know, the, the BBC Four on a Friday night, we love those sort of documentaries, don't we? But I'm sure there probably isn't huge money to be made from them. So when, so just going to the new album, which is called Mindset, that's coming yeah. out in a couple of months' time. Did yeah. that? When did you start sort of seriously sort of sitting there and thinking, right, new album next year? When I was doing the Wonderlust tour, I just started uh, writing, um, writing then. Actually, on tour. So that was one of the things that got me out of the. Uh, in fact, one of the songs on the album references it directly. Two songs on the album. Well, kind of one directly, one indirectly. Um, Warm reception and sleep with mannequins. Sleep with mannequin. Uh, they uh, they kind of talk about aspects of. Uh, what we discussed earlier about touring, uh, but it's not, you know, I didn't want to say it's about touring. It's just um, it's because then you kind of um, you straight jacket your song really. So I just wanted to kind of leave it slightly ambi um, a bit of ambiguity there. Yes. Uh, so you can invite people into uh, hopefully uh, so it can inhabit their world and they can adapt it to their their circumstances. Absolutely. And what would you say to an an eighteen year old self? You know the the bit of wisdom that you felt like God. Actually, if, I'd love to have just been told that one thing when I was beginning this journey. Trust your judgment.
and never so did you were there was there people or were there decisions when you look back thinking ah oh, really that came back to bite me yeah, trust it. well what i mean is though is trust your instinct in terms of your judgment trust your instinct because yeah and um, i should have said that trust your instinct was it was it that point though at those those kind of crossroads in life where you still weren't quite convinced of your own like self and you thought oh actually i'm i'm, I'm gonna get i've been swayed here because i haven't been able to think no that's not what i'm gonna do um i know right so i said earlier there's a lot of water under the bridge and uh, there certainly is you know and i don't mind admitting that the bridge needs some scaffolding and a bit of bloody pointing and all that business as well uh but the one thing i'm certain of now is that i'm not certain and I'm really happy about that. So, but when I was younger, I um, I wasn't, I didn't stop to, I didn't stop to kind of think about it like that. But I didn't have the experience. Um, but maybe uh, you know, who am I to give out? Everybody's bloody different, you know. So, um, but one, one, you know, that that thing about your instinct is, you know, sometimes maybe uh, I wish I'd have, I'd have taken a deep breath. And I'd really try to, instead of uh, just going, yeah or no immediately, on a kind of an emotional level, I wish I'd just gone, I'd take a deep breath, and I'm just going to think, who is this? Who's in here? Who's here? Oh, yeah, it's me. And how are you feeling? And then go with that instinct. Yes. And when and when with your new album, do you sort of when you finish it, do you sort of send a copy to Stephen to say, "I'm I'm keeping the flame alive." <laughs> yeah, Stephen. Stephen definitely gets a copy without a doubt, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, which has been the case, <laughs> get thumbs up. But uh, yeah, of course. I mean. Yes. Yeah. Because you must feel, you know, like I've often wondered, you know, like legacies and how, you know, like music gets. I don't know, given to the next generation. So obviously, you know, sort of your work in the last 10 years has, you know, has been incredibly important for the band because it's kind of given it a, another life. And also you've been able to write another narrative. Otherwise, it would have been just one of those 80 band, 80s bands that would have been lumped in and gone to those kind of 80s festivals and you'd have all sort of got your old fashions out and tried to squeeze into them. Whereas actually being, a, you know, being serious about what you're doing means that you've slightly taken yourself out of just being on that nostalgia circuit. Well, um, I'm just trying to do uh, what's, you know, this thing about going, we mentioned about going with your instinct and what what suits you. And um, you said something about trying to fit yourself into something that doesn't, you know, no longer fits you. Well, I, you know, also, that's not for me. And I've, I, you know, I'm really interested in, with all the difficulties, I'm really, I'm far more interested in what's next. Yes. Far more interested. I, you know, I'm, and as soon as I finish an album, for example, well, I'm not going to listen to it. I want to, I want people, to, I want other people to listen to it. And it's great to get feedback on it. But I, I don't listen to it other than to try and learn the song uh, when we're going to rehearsal. Because it's a very different uh, mindset <laughs> than uh, it would be if I was, um, in the creative process of actually writing it. 
Yes. I, it's interesting, isn't it? I always remember Neil Young saying, I've never listened to my own music. I've, once I've done well, what's it. what's the point? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Christ, you wrote it. Get on and listen to something else. There's a lot of music out there. There's a lot of books to read. There's a lot of films to see. Whatever you want to do, um, you know, go and see some art. Have a walk. Go, go up a hill. Yes. Go down it. You, go, go you, don't have, you don't have to get to the top. You could walk around it. Absolutely. <laughs> especially, especially. Get in it. Get in it. Don't go over it. Well, I always remember uh, a sort of it was a, a school speech day, and a, a, a pre, an ex headmaster say, saying, "Don't be a spectator in the game of life." Which I, well, I was thirteen mm. at the time, and I was thinking, oh, that's an "That was an interesting thought." Don't be a spectator. Profound, isn't it? It is a bit profound, <laughs> but I've always remembered it. It was like, yeah, you know, yes. that's why, you know, that thing you mentioned earlier about, you know, be, be, you know, the nastiness on social media at times and all that. It's a bit like, yeah, you know, you, you know, if you if you're a spectator, you kind of do that. But if you're if you're a player in whatever field and whatever you try and whatever level you you have a lot more I think a lot more empathy because you think actually it's hard you know it's not easy because whether you're going for a bike ride or a run or trying to learn to swim properly or make a record you know it, there's times when you think Christ is it really worth it and then you kind of you know struggle yep. on a bit and you think actually I've kind of gotten you know I've gone through a process there but it was hard you know but um, you certainly have a bit more empathy with your fellow human being mm-hmm. Absolutely, come out, you know, come out the, uh, come out the other end uh, with a. It's nothing to do with being a better person. It's just a kind of a, a more rounded view on things. Totally. And, uh, I've done a lot of rabbiting whilst we you've asked me questions, and it's going to be difficult for you to edit this. But um, you know, one thing I learned a long time ago was, uh, and I, and you know, so I, I said that I, the one thing I'm certain of is that I'm not certain, and I'm really happy about that. And I would not have been able to feel like that in the 80s. I just wasn't aware. Of, you know, I really wasn't aware. I wasn't kind of mature enough to understand that um, and uh, to be comfortable with it. Um, and the other thing I've learned on the journey, and it's massively significant for me, is uh, to to try and listen. Because when somebody says something to you, irrespective of whether you agree with it or not, it's weighted with emotion. Now, sometimes, we talked about social media, it's very difficult to gauge emotion, isn't it? It's like firing off a text. Yes. It can be so easily misconstrued. But if you're talking as we are now, it wouldn't take long if we stepped out of the, the interview mode to actually get a gauge of each other, if we listened. This is true. So you know that's what I that's what I'm you know it's a, it's a, that's you know some of that's I'm dealing with that on the on the album you know but uh, <laughs> that's only the sound never mind the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, look, you must have enough for a yeah. book already from me, so I'm going to let you bugger off and get you're going to have to edit this. And that was me in conversation with Neil Arthur from Le Mange. Big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. I do believe they're going to be touring again at the autumn 2020, if we're lucky. Anyway, enough about that. Um, yes, this has been the C86 Show. David Eastall, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. Also, they're all being archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway. Enough. We must go. Have a great week.
stay safe.